Kia ora, I'm Amelia and Kian from the Silver Ferns and you are listening to the Half Court Press. This is Gary Wright from Wright Performance and you're currently listening to the Half Court Press podcast. Hi, my name is Julie Finney Ibsen and you are listening to the Half Court Press podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to season two of the Half Court Press podcast. In this series, Behind the Kit Bag, we take a look at the world of sport from a different angle. Each episode will bring you a story from somebody who has a non-playing role within the sport of their choice. My name is Theo McLeod and I will be with you for each and every interview. The first time I met Jake Trimmings was when we were working together out in China. In our sixth episode, Jake tells us about his journey to get there. Right, so Mr. Jake Trimmings. Hello. Football coach extraordinaire. Yes, I hope well. One day, hopefully, yeah. Um, right, so this, we shall begin at the, at the beginning, hopefully. Um, could you tell us yeah. a bit about your background, who you are, who you've worked for, where, where you come from, that sort of thing? Yeah, um, well, in terms of football, um, obviously what got me into football, I think, like most people, is my dad, a uh, massive football fan, doesn't really follow any other sports, so any sports on TV is, is going to be football. So I, I loved watching football through him, I loved watching with him, it's a great time to, to bond with him, and uh, he, he supported Manchester United, which... Um, is okay. They've had success. I'm saying they've had a lot of success uh, during my childhood, which I guess is good to see. But um, <laughs> they've obviously struggled in recent years as well. And but ultimately, we are not from Manchester. We're from down south, and that kind of got me frustrated about not watching the team and all that. And it was just one one. Uh, normal Saturday game back in November 2006 where my primary school took me to the Valley, which is the home of Charlton Athletic, and we, I, I went to watch Charlton play Man City um, in a Premier League game, and yeah, it was fantastic, my first football game. It's a shame it took so long for that to come about at age nine, but uh, well, I absolutely loved the day. Um, thankfully, Charlton won the game 1-0. Darren Ben Header, so I'll never forget that. He he gave me amazing memories, and yeah, and then that kind of built my love for Charlton. I've followed the club ever since, and that gradually moved on to my adult life, where I joined the University of Greenwich, which is a part partnered with Charlton Athletic, and I've had some amazing opportunities through them. And now I've done a degree, and now I'm gaining some football experience in China. Um, just you know coming here just months after graduating so yeah it's it's a, a crazy journey when you think about everything that's happened to me in football so far for my age but it's, uh, how old are you Jake great learning what's that sorry how, how old are now? you I'm 22 now so you graduated last summer yes yeah, summer 2018 yeah, I, I met you out in in southern China uh, in Shenzhen um, but before we get into that, 
I, I'd like to um, touch on your academic career, if that's all right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you, so Greenwich, you went to Greenwich. And um, University. What's your, what was your undergrad, graduate degree in? It, well, the, the, the degree was it's quite a long name. Sports science with professional football coaching. So the sports science uh, department there is quite a big one, I think. Um, they've got fantastic facilities there. And they have students that just want to do sports science. There's some that want to do coaching for other sports. And then there's the football coaching one obviously was my interest which is the one that's linked with with Charlton so um, they've got a great sports science uh, department there and so it was a no-brainer to join a, a university that was well not also not far from where my family are from um, but also obviously partnered with the club that I support so it seemed like a perfect course for me to go on so I jumped at the opportunity when I when I found it and had to apply. Thankfully, got offered the place back in 2015, and uh, yeah, <laughs> so it was like a long time ago now since I started uni. I mean, this year will be five years since I started. So, has right. has an academic uh, point of view changed your perspective on sports? Oh, absolutely! It showed sort of how professional we have to be, how determined and passionate about things, because. You know, before I went to university, I was nothing more than just a football fan. You know, I'd been, I'd been to some local games, been to, to see Charlton play. So I've seen sort of different levels of football. But and at the end of the day, you're just a fan. You know, you you'll care about the result, but that's as far as it goes. And you might not necessarily see the players' side of it or the coaches' side of it. Um, and that's been able to. I've been able to see this from going to university. I've been able to have um, some great discussions with some co coaches at Charlton's Academy. Um, I've also been able to talk to some of the players there and, and be quite involved with the club. So, yeah, it's been able to open my eyes to the wider picture of, of football. And so, yeah, I'm quite grateful for that because I think it's very important to know, especially if you are a, a young, upcoming football coach. What is the wider picture. What do you know now that you didn't know before? Well, I know how, how committed you have to be to, to sport. You have to make it your life. And with football fans, there will be fans that are extremely passionate about their club and some fans will obviously go up and down the country to support them. But ultimately, there's still so much that happens behind closed doors and, and football clubs are sort of changing now, becoming a business, um, even lower down. You know, players are getting paid thousands and thousands of pounds per week. And so, yeah, it, it, football clubs are becoming different, but there's still a whole life outside of just the match. You know, you've got players' personal lives. You, you don't necessarily know what's going on there. And the coaches' personal life and, and how the board take things. And obviously, I've seen some of the, um, how should we say, just just the bad side of football and um, poor ownership. You know, I've been right in the heart of the, the protests with Charlton, not necessarily because I wanted to be involved with it, just because of the job that I had at the time. So, yeah, I've seen some some of the, the ugly side of football, but but ultimately it's, uh, it's, it's been a fantastic experience just to learn as well as obviously all the you know the the other stuff to do with sports science and you know 
because that covers all different sides of things. It covers laboratory work, it covers nutrition, it covers sports psychology. So I've been been able to learn various different things throughout my time at university. What were the process at Charlton? The process was against the ownership of Roland de Chatelot, um, a name which any Charlton fan would hate to hear and thankfully we don't have to hear it any again after being taken over just a couple of months ago so um yeah that was uh when i was volunteering for the club on match days i would maybe <laughs> unintentionally involved with it obviously there's the part of me that's a fan that is obviously against the ownership and there's the other part of me that has to be professional in the job that i am currently delivering at, on match days so it, it's uh it was an interesting experience uh, going through the protest, but ultimately, you know, as a fan, we all wanted the owner to go. There was no way he could have kept going on for any longer, and it, and it took so long just to get the ownership um, over. And now, now we've got a new owner, and the future is looking bright, albeit that we stay up <laughs> this season. But if we can stay up this season, I'm sure next season we can really kick on and get some good transfers done in the summer. What were the issues? The issues, uh, how long have you got? I mean, seriously, everything was wrong. The the way of thinking by the board was wrong. Um, they didn't exactly put themselves, you know, in, in the good eyes of Charlton fans because they sacked Chris Powell within a couple of months of uh, gaining ownership of the club. Obviously, he's a club favourite, so you, you wouldn't want to see him leave. But um, that didn't help, and there was emails leaked about the fact that the ownership were kind of trying to encourage uh, Chris Powell to play certain players and trying to interfere with team selection and you just can't do that you know if you're going to give Chris Powell the if you're going to keep him in charge you have to give him the right to choose which players he, he feels is best for a team so that was strange and there's so many comments made about uh, Katrine Mayer who was the former CEO of Charlton she had not, she didn't really know anything about football. She's just a, a lawyer who is, is Belgian, just like Roland de Chatelet, and they obviously know each other. But she's made crazy comments about saying, um, you know, she wanted to get 20,000 people into the valley, even though that's not going to happen under their ownership. She won, She said that only 2% of fans are unhappy, which is obviously complete lies when you see... The, the pictures of, of processes happening and there'll be countless other things that, that she said and she said she said actually she said once about if you go to a restaurant and you complain about something um, then you go to see the manager but then she said when a football club football fans will say it's my club even though you know it's not technically their club and it's like it's just strange because I think I can understand obviously as a football fan you do definitely see it as your club you know you'll be there before, you were there before the ownership you'll be there after the ownership goes so yeah she, don't, she didn't really grasp what exactly a football fan is like and, and what Charlton means to these fans so that was really frustrating and that is something that an owner needs to see you know an owner really needs to be embedded with the community and, um, I think the best examples of owners do just that where where do you think? Oh, sorry, how do you think business and football can it can can interact? I suppose it's the almost professional side and the social sides of of football and sports. 
how how do you think that those two things can uh, can mix together? Well, ultimately, if um, if a businessman takes over a football club, they were able to provide the resources that maybe that football club didn't have before. Um, and the the former owner of Charlton, he did have money, just didn't seem to invest it. You know, we had players sold and. And unfortunately, that money wasn't reinvested. You know, we got eleven million pounds for Adam Lookman for his transfer to Everton, and Carl Robinson, the manager at the time, was told he'd only have four hundred thousand pounds to spend of that eleven million, which is crazy. It's not enough at all. Um, as well as the sale of Joe Gomez for literally peanuts, and now he's you know arguably should be in England's starting eleven. So, really questionable decisions were made on the business side there. But ultimately, an owner can provide a community with so much more. And I think, obviously, from a chop point of view, this is the club point of view that I will see best, uh, the new ownership, uh, Matt Southall, who I have to you know, give massive praise for so far, he seems to be doing just that. He's spoken to many fans, um, and he's been able to really know what it's like to be a chop fan. Because um, I think Chop, we are a family club. They've... The club have won awards for it. I've been proud to be part of that family um, sort of atmosphere that you get at games. And ultimately, it is a project, but it's a project that the, this new ownership are looking forward to. And uh, yeah, there's a lot to be excited about. A London club with a fantastic youth facility. What's not what's not to like? And uh, as I say, I think business can be very good for football. Obviously, it's when you get up to the Premier League where things get a bit. Um, mysterious, let's say. Um, you know, we've got Manchester City's Champions League ban, which is um, yeah, not not ideal for them, I guess. But you know, supposedly their lawyers are better than UEFA's. So yeah, certainly in the Premier League, end business in football is is strange, and it's there's a lot of money involved, probably too much. <laughs> Alright, so back on to yourself. Um, so you graduated from from Greenwich Uni. Uh, did you yes. did you stay on at at Charlton for a bit? What what were you doing at Charlton? So I had well I had two roles at Charlton. Um, one of which I worked for for three years, which was the match day job. So this was working with the family activity zone, which is a little family zone which is um, just run at the at the start of like a game so well before a game so it's about an hour and a half of um, just before the match and yeah, it's just a little section of a car park where families go to um, just for some like a little kick around we had a, a blow up target shooting target thing so just for kids to shoot a ball into and then there's different holes different points values and then little football cage thing so it's, it's nice for kids to get involved with and uh, you know, meet the mascots and stuff like that so I just got involved with help, helping run that and yeah as I said I did that as a voluntary job although they Charlton did give me free um, access into the games which was nice and I and sometimes the job would entail like going onto the pitch or something so so I've been able to go on the Charlton pitch thankfully uh, without, without a pitch invasion but, um, yeah, so that was a really exciting job that I did for three years. Um, and, yeah, obviously just a bit of a shame that a lot of it was over the time of the previous ownership. We had protests and sometimes we had to 
actually shut the zone because it wasn't really safe for kids to be out at that point. So, um, yeah, and obviously that was interesting because we were told, I was told by my superior to not talk to fans about the ownership because some fans would actually come up to me and think I know more than the average fan. And it's like, okay, I know I've got Charlton like official you know, uniform on, but it doesn't mean that I know higher up the club, you know, other than that hour and a half, I'm just a normal fan like everyone else. So um, that, that was quite funny. But uh, yeah, and then the other job I had at Charlton was uh, an internship, which I did during third year. So I had that for four months, um, working with Charlton's Academy, working with some various different age groups. And, and that was really insightful to be able to speak to different coaches, how they approach things, how they go about coaching kids of under 13 compared to under eights. And um, being able to just see the differences there and, and the old time I'd be able to see with an under 18s training session or... Um, sometimes when I came in, uh, there would be, because the, the first team pitches are kind of closer to the entrance, so sometimes you'd walk past those pitches and see the first team train. So, yeah, that was fantastic to see as well. Um, so I learned a lot from the coaches there. Obviously, they're more qualified than me, so I think it's, <laughs> it's right for me to listen to them and take on board. But I think also I impressed them as well with what I knew um, and you know, my attention to detail with certain things and, and just I think questions it's just really important to ask questions why do they do this um, and why wouldn't you do it this way things like that so that was um, really insightful for me and uh, and thankfully my um, I was awarded for both jobs I got a voluntary award through the University of Greenwich after I completed the first season at Charlton and then I won the um Sports Coach Intern of the Year Award 2017-18 through the University of Greenwich as well. So I got an award for each as well. So it's nice that my work at each role was recognised by the club. So oh, very good. Very well, an award-winning volunteer. That's right. An award-winning volunteer and an award-winning um, intern as well. So... Can you give me an example of a conversation that you had at, or uh, or something that you saw that moved on your your ideas of, of coaching, your ideas of how to set up a session? Well, the, the main guy that I spoke to was a guy called Anthony Hayes, who he's the current uh, Charlton under-18s manager. And he, he spoke to me about different things that they have to log on to the computer they have to write a lot there's a lot you have to write down and obviously as a coach it's important to to kind of maybe self-evaluate and be able to reflect on the session and what could be improved but there's a lot that they have to you know submit just as standard as their job which um, I felt quite was quite interesting um, but yeah the way to set it up obviously for the younger kids they they obviously do want to play games and they want to session to be quite fun and it is I think because I think the way that the coaches are able to use like an, an analogy to uh, to get them to defend so say for example um, I remember that they were trying to teach how to defend and how you should stand sort of when being approached by maybe someone who's dribbling the ball and they said um, as a defender you should try and be on your surfboard, I said it's kind of in annotations. So the way that you might stand on surfboards, maybe the way you should stand when you're trying to defend. And I think those sort of ways are probably more fun for kids because they're, they're more likely to remember it. And I think 
maybe this is part of why the academy is so successful. Um, and I remember there was uh, Carl Robinson came in, who was obviously the former first team manager. He came to watch a session that I was also watching, and he kind of just <laughs> he walked in and interrupted it. I wasn't, I was just observing. I wasn't running the session, but he just walked in and and said, "Oh, you should be passing, but while leading your back." backwards and and that will give you um you know a, a longer range pass and so kids started doing that and you know even he was teaching the under 10s um he was he, i think he said he referred back to Stevie gerard obviously an amazing pass with the ball um and obviously carl robinson himself is a scouser so of course he's going to use that example but yeah i certainly learned various things i wish i could have got a contact with Carl Robinson at the time, but <laughs> unfortunately not. Um, but uh, certainly, uh, as I say, the conversations I had with Anthony Hayes in particular was, was a fantastic one, just the way they go about things. And to be a part of that successful youth academy for a long time was great. And also, I, uh, one really special uh, evening I had was when I was invited to this um, coach's evening, which... Um, we had a couple of people come in to speak to us regarding um, personalities and how they're important, uh, which is something similar I learned to uh, during university as well. But there was also a full-on like training session of like 11 v 11 that Jason Yule put on. He's the current um, under-23s manager. He's got his uh, UEFA Pro licence um, now, which is fantastic. Didn't he play in the uh, World so, Cup? Yeah. Didn't he play for Wimbledon yes. as well? I believe so. He he's our he's still our record transfer actually five million pounds, which is quite bad that five million pounds is the maximum we've ever spent on a player. But uh, yeah, he's a he was a great player for us. Um, wasn't he uh, world, Wasn't he ninety eight World Cup in uh, for Jamaica as well? Wasn't he? He's played for Jamaica. I can't. I mean ninety eight. I mean that's I can't remember <laughs> quite <laughs> as early as that. But um, yeah, I just. I remember that, yeah, he's a former player for us and he's scored some important goals and, you know, he's still a record goal scorer. But he has, he has played for Jamaica internationally, yeah. I can't remember which games exactly. Um, yeah, as, as a coach, he's fantastic. So, good for me. <laughs> um, right, more recently, what have, you, what have you been up to? More recently? Um, well, see... I'm in China at the moment, and as it's widely known, China obviously has a deadly virus going on at the moment. Thankfully, the city I live in, Shenzhen, is okay. We've, I think we've had four cases in the last nine days, something like that. It's it's like maybe one every two days. So that's quite low. Um, the city is still taking everything very seriously, as, as it should. Um, because we don't exactly know if there are many cases out there. There could be a, a load of hidden cases. But, um, yeah, more recently, there's not been too much. But, uh, yeah, um, the last time I talked was January. So it's almost almost two months ago since I was my last had to work. So, um, yeah, but it's just how it goes, obviously. Yeah, the Chinese New Year, and then there's an extended holiday. So the uh, I met you was working in in schools uh, over right, over yeah. in Shenzhen. Uh, how how did how do you find the 
I suppose our title was um, PE teacher or football teacher, wasn't it? How, yes. how do you find working as a teacher compared to a coach? Well, the main thing I think is that you are the only football influencer that child has. Obviously, these children might not necessarily be into football, um, but ultimately, it's kind of your job. Um, on top of the other things to actually get them into football and so you kind of have to approach things differently obviously technical things more technical things they might not grasp maybe that's down to a language barrier although you can always demonstrate it but I think maybe it's down to the fact that maybe they don't really want to play but some of them are quite interested in it obviously they'll they'll find it more fun than other subjects they do Um, and it's quite interesting that you know, there'll be groups of kids that will regularly have a, you know, an actual football training session once a week. And so, yeah, it, it's, um, it can be challenging to get particular kids into football. I find that, um, obviously, when it rains here, the kids, they don't play outside, which I found very strange because, obviously, I come from a country where it rains a lot. And actually, a lot of people argue playing in the rain is the best weather for football. But um, when it rains, obviously, we have to go inside. Unfortunately, they don't have, like, an indoor sports um, hall, at least one that we can use. So we've been able to show them different clips of, of football, and ultimately, visual is, doesn't have a language. They can still watch and, and learn different sides of football from that way. And, and ultimately, if it, if it gets them more interested in football and makes them try hard on the next session, then great. And... Uh, so yeah, that that was um, really helpful. But yeah, certainly coach to a teacher, it is different, especially being in a different country. On top of that, but as long as you can get them interested in football, then they'll they'll try hard, and um, ultimately that will make you proud to be their teacher. How do you find the language barrier? Well, obviously I had an assistant with my job at. Um, the first school that I worked at here, um, obviously provided by the company. Although the thing is, obviously, me and him will see things differently, um, which is understandable. We're from two different cultures, uh, two different ages as well, because he was about 10 years older than me. So ultimately, yeah, we will see things differently. Um, the language where it's not too bad, because at this stage, I, I taught kids of, you know, like grade one, two and three. They're, they're very young kids. And uh, so you might not necessarily use too much you know, actual language. You may use um, just sort of body language and just showing them demonstrations. And usually they can grasp it um, quite quickly from then on. You know, if, they, if, if you spot a kid that's maybe not understanding it, you can just demonstrate and then they should be okay. Um, but just some simple words, you know, as I say, with some classes, they get rained off, so you get to go inside. Um, and you can use those opportunities to maybe teach them some English words, just sort of pass, shoot, tackle, um, dribble, things like this. And, and maybe they could understand it from then. Um, so the language, right, obviously, it's not ideal, but it's something that comes with the job. Um, and to be fair, there are some kids, even as low as grade one, whose English is actually quite impressive. So, um, you know, maybe you can get the odd kid to even translate maybe more uh, difficult words. But um, it's okay. It's, it's not too bad. So, you know, all the kids are learning English. Um, obviously, 
older kids such as grade five and six um, that I taught, they are you know, definitely better in English and obviously it's easier to get your message across. So obviously the older kids are better um, because also they might be more interested in football as well. But the grade ones, it's a bit more challenging. But they still, they love games. Uh, they love to be part of, you know, um, uh, playing football as well. And to have a foreign teacher as a grade one kid must be quite exciting. So, so they enjoy it, which is the main thing, I think, for them. How how do you find the uh, the 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 Chinese approach to teaching? Well, um, it's quite strict, I think. Um, I think, but rightfully so. I think some kids are some kids do see school as an opportunity to misbehave because they won't misbehave in front of their parents or their grandparents. So especially if they're with a foreign teacher, that's when they think they can get away with things. But as long as you show that you're strict as well from the start, um, or maybe even you'd have like a school teacher saying, um, look, this foreign teacher is not going to take, it's not going to take any nonsense. You know, you, you all have to behave, uh, even though obviously he's not fluent in Chinese, but <laughs> you, you also have to behave as, as best you can. Otherwise they'll get in trouble as the same as they would. But, um, yeah, the way, I mean, the way that they teach football is obviously different. I've seen sessions run by a Chinese coach. And, of course, I might not be able to understand the dialects, but I can still understand what's going on. Um, I think they do probably focus too much on having a player with a ball because I'll see sessions of, like, 40-odd kids. Every kid will have a ball. And I just think that's just a really wasted opportunity because... Most of the game, a player will not have the ball. You know, it's very important to work a player's ability to, to work off the ball. And that's not really done. I mean, it, you know, even a session of 40 kids, you know, even having 20 balls and having, two, you know, two players pass to each other, okay, at least that's a bit better. At least you've got one player maybe finding space to receive a pass. But yeah, they definitely focus too much on, you know, having the ball and, okay, dribbling is obviously important and, being able to have close control of the ball, sure, but there's a lot more to football than that. So that I kind of don't like, and I think that is um, something important that maybe um, there's a culture difference. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why companies will bring in foreign coaches to have that different approach. And, and ultimately, if I'm seeing these things I don't feel right, then that's can only really be beneficial because, you know, I'm... Obviously, if they want someone to speak Chinese, then they they can. But, you know, if the language barrier isn't a problem and they just want someone with a different view of things, then, you know, foreign coaches are definitely the, the way to go for that. And, yeah, so it's, uh, it's good that I've been able to recognise the differences between the teaching that they do. And ultimately, I feel they must be doing something wrong if... Because <laughs> China really, I think a lot... Fans here will say that their world ranking should be a lot higher than what it is, but um, it can be difficult for kids to get into football. It can be difficult for kids to kind of convince their parents to become professional football players. So that obviously does hinder them, and as well as um, you know maybe trying to get a working visa in um, other countries and being able to play abroad. So it can be difficult for the kids to become professional, but um, especially as obviously you know Chinese Super League teams 
really all the focus still goes on the foreign players. But um, yeah, still, even what they teach at you know maybe primary school level is still maybe not quite how I would do things. So yeah. Now talking about the Chinese Super League. Um, the 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 mighty Shenzhen were recently relegated from the Chinese Super League. Unfortunately, they were. Um, one of the most bizarre birthdays I've ever had was um, I think mid was like halfway through the last season or towards the end of last season, and uh, yeah, ended up in a restaurant after the game, and my flatmate tells one of the fans that it's my birthday, and I had like a hundred Chinese football fans singing happy birthday to me. It was yeah. one of the most bizarre experiences of my life. It's fantastic. Lovely, lovely bunch of people. Um, yeah. Yes. And uh, the how would you compare um, football in China to, and football at, in the UK, both from a youth youth point of view, um, youth development point of view, and uh, the top the top level. With, with youth development, I think that more. I, mean, I think that the the government are putting a lot of money into youth development in China. Um, I mean, supposedly the, the president really does love football. Whether that's genuine love or if that's just you know, maybe you can see financial gains, I'm not sure. But um, as I say, because it's difficult for maybe kids to convince parents that they really want to do football, um, it can be difficult for them to develop and. Obviously, a lot of kids here, I mean, obviously, many Chinese kids will live in a city, and maybe that uh, city doesn't have um, affordable um, facilities that these kids can use. Um, to be fair, schools are very good. Like, it's no surprise if you see, even at a primary school, you know, massive buildings, maybe a really good pitch. Um, and, yeah, maybe that's why football coaches are brought to schools because maybe the schools are where the good facilities are but um, certainly uh, improvements can be made I think that kids still need to do more about being realistic with themselves and um, you know obviously it's all well and good watching players like Messi and Ronaldo um, and trying to develop your game off them but certainly even just watching maybe more local teams I don't think they really do I don't see that many kids watching um, even like Shenzhen, you know, the, obviously there's many kids in this city and they have the opportunity to watch a, well, a then uh, Super League team play and it just doesn't really happen. And ultimately, if you want to be a player, you've got to be involved with football in all areas, really. You know, you've got to, to know what atmosphere is like at, at a game um, and sort of start to know what the demands are for being a player. So I think there's still a lot of improvements that many people can make. I think, as I say, the coaches can definitely make improvements. The players' way of thinking can definitely improve. Uh, but obviously, funding as well is very important. Um, the youth development in England, um, I would say, it's definitely improving. Um, obviously, the world ranking has gone up a bit in recent years, I believe. Um, obviously, getting to the semi-finals of the World Cup was great. Although, interestingly, I was in a coaching course the day after the England Croatia game, and obviously that was a big discussion because we've all come into the into the uh, classroom quite disappointed, um, having been knocked out of the World Cup and missing a chance to get to the final. But um, ultimately, that was kind of an analyzed, and the coach that um, 
ran the course. He said that actually this was a really big missed opportunity. We should not have lost to Croatia because of their size and population and all this. But ultimately, I think the, the tactics on that day weren't very good. But <laughs> that can be a something for another day. But um, in terms of youth development, I've been pleased that the, the players that have come through in more recent years seem to be more technical. I think that there's been too much of a focus on the physicality of a player and maybe the mental side as well. But certainly the technicality, I mean, I'm not saying that England should be producing players like as good as Messi or Ronaldo because obviously they are amazingly technically gifted. But certainly they should be producing maybe just technically better players, you know. Um, I'd love to see players, you know, use both feet more. I'd love to, you know, uh, I think, to be fair, kids nowadays, even at a young age, they are taught to play from the back, you know, which is obviously encouraging teamwork, encouraging passing, um, and obviously encouraging just general, more technical play, rather than sort of hoofing it up field and being able to have the physicality to beat a centre-back to the ball. So I'm glad that more technical players are coming through. It does give the current squad a bit more of a mix. And, uh, yeah, uh, I'm happy with the way that the youth development is going. Um, it seems that the England squad should always be young. There are obviously some experienced players that deserve to be in the squad now, but certainly I think the future for England is very bright and uh, hopefully I'll see the winner major toilet soon. How will they do in Euro 2020? I don't know. It could be uh, a very interesting tournament. Um, I, th- I think my expectations probably would be semi-final. I think um, arguably... I don't know if the squad that we sent to the Euros will be better than the World Cup squad, but certainly I think we should be getting to the semi-finals. I think to be, I think to be in the top four nations is a fair estimate for us. Um, but if we win it or get close, then absolutely fantastic. So that will prepare us well for the the World Cup upcoming in two years. How does the Chinese Super League compare to the English Premier League? Um, going to the Super League matches as a fan I think the fans point of view is actually better than what I thought although I do find it strange how the ultras of the club they have different groups um, at Shenzhen I, I don't know if it's the same every club but at Shenzhen they kind of have three different fan groups and they're all sit separately and it's quite strange because you'll have you know, one fan group will sit in with each other. Then you have like a block of just people sitting down, just, you know, normal fans. And then you've got more ultras, but of a different fan group. I, I do find that quite strange. Um, that, because, you know, in England, all the ultras are just together and you just create one massive noise together. But um, that, yeah, so different fan groups are strange. But to be fair, the fan group that I've been with are very passionate about the club. Um, even though they might actually support, they might support like a Manchester United or a Liverpool or something like that um, on top of Shenzhen, but they're still very passionate. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's great to, to be a part of. And um, so I think some Premier League games then maybe are dampened by atmospheres because maybe you get a lot of day tourists come along. And uh, I don't, I, I I've been to a Premier League game for a, a long time. Um, yeah. So I don't really know exactly what atmospheres are like nowadays, but is, is, that, is that the uh, is that is that the knockback of supporting Jolton? Is it? 
to be fair, Cholton fans, I have to say, I'm very impressed with how Cholton fans have been at, at games in the last few years. I've been part of some amazing uh, atmospheres, particularly away ones. Um, going away, I mean, I remember we went away to um, Portsmouth and we, we sold out the away end, as, as we should really, because it's not that far. Um, and it was an important sort of playoff game in League One. Um, and obviously Portsmouth, they're, they're well known for their fans. They've they've got a lot of fans for their current level of football, so they were Premier League not so long ago. And we obviously we were expecting quite a bit from them. We were expecting a chance uh, made towards Charlton, um, to be said. But actually, there wasn't really much on that day. And uh, and we won the game one 0 thanks to a goal from Nicky and Jose. Uh, unfortunately, the goal was scored at the opposite end where the Charlton fans were, but. When the goal went in, it was absolutely mental. And uh, we were singing the entire 90 minutes. And uh, we even had Portsmouth fans come out on Twitter after the game saying, oh, Charlton fans, they were the best fans we've had at Fratton Park for years. And you think, oh, Christ. And I think it just got to the point where us as a fan group, we're just annoyed about the ownership so long. We're just like, do you know what? We're in League One, which is an ideal, but we're just going to go out there and just, I mean, just give it our all. You know, if, you, if the fans are singing it, during the 90 minutes that's only going to help our players um, so yeah we just got to a point where we were just really annoyed about the ownership situation so we're just going to sing our hearts out and that should help the team and obviously eventually we did get promoted back to the championship where we are now so right last question should there be a Great Britain football team at the Olympics yeah I don't see why not um, I think it's important to be recognised in these big sporting events. Um, obviously, the fact that we play as separate nations, you know, in, in other football major tournaments, um, maybe deceives the idea. But certainly, I think that I think for the Olympics, we should be able to get together. I mean, ultimately, uh, for the Olympics that we hosted, we. We got together for that, you know. Ultimately, if, if we can be part of, if we can be together alongside, you know, Wales and Scotland um, for the Olympics, then we should be able to get together for football as well. And ultimately, it can it can bring us together, and ultimately, it can also maybe give some opportunities to younger players because obviously that's what it's really aimed at. Um, younger players from all the different nations to have a chance at a big event. So. I think it can only really be beneficial for all of us. I mean, a lot of these players might actually play together at club level anyway. So, yeah, I think an Olympics team would be a great idea. Yeah, I mean, in every other sport, there is a, a GB-style team. Um, hockey, we, 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 we're home nations, which it's three home nations. It's, it's a unified Ireland. Yeah. Uh, rugby, it's a, it's, a, it's a GB and Irish touring team, um, which is... Yeah. Which is every four years, and it's um, yeah, every other team sport I can think of has a GB side. Apart from netball, they don't do that because it's because it think partly because it's not in the Commonwealth, it's not in the uh, Olympic Games. But every other every other invasion sport, I think, pretty much does this sort of thing where they have individual home nations and then come together for a, a particular event. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think. It- it just says a lot about football and how 
seriously people take it and you know ultimately as I said football is the business now so maybe it's down to the business side of things um, or maybe it's just down to the fact that maybe players don't want to agree to to play with um, you know, players of maybe a different nationality to I think I think it's more to do with the uh, federations, the football associations. Okay. Um, there's a, there's a there's a lot of uh, I think there's a lot of pressure from smaller countries. Uh, right. Where where they go? How how can Great Britain have four different teams? <laughs> uh, when we can't have our, you know, because you know, I think as a state we're registered as as the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern yes. Ireland. So it, how can how can you, the United Kingdom have, have Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England playing separately? And uh, I'm mean, at, at, at random, why can't the Basque country have an officially recognised team or Catalonia have an officially recognised team? Um, so the Scots and the Welsh, I think the Northern Irish as well, have been going... Well, if we go to GB, then we might lose our individual status. I see. Um, I can. I mean, I can see why they would think that. Um, but yeah, I think maybe they they could do it. Um, I'd, I'd like to see it. But if it doesn't happen, I'll, I'll understand the reasons why. So what happens, I guess, if anything changes. Hi, my name is Maestro and you're listening to the Half Court Press podcast. This has been a Half Court Press production by Theo McLeod.